0: Um, welcome, everyone. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here at City Beautiful Church. As uh, as Cole mentioned uh, this morning, we had baby dedication. We were able to welcome um, two uh, relatively newborns into our family. And tonight we're going to be celebrating holy baptism, which is monumental. Um, so it's it's I'm I'm so excited because it fits so beautifully with not only the series that we're in, not only the vision for this uh, this year overall in our church community but also where we're landing in the story of John. Um, so for those of you that aren't familiar, um, this year we've kind of laid out kind of the, vi- the larger vision that's carrying us through the year, which is loving community for bold exploration. And we really feel like this is what the Lord's calling us to focus in on in, in this season um, and especially for our church, but not only for our church, uh, but so much of where the church is nationally like us learning what does it mean to be a loving community that as we step into that loving environment as we're there devoted to one another as God is devoted to us that gives us permission to enter into bold exploration and begin to discover who God is who he's calling us to be and how we're called to be in the world and so kind of the first series that we're looking at in that um, as I was praying in December I really felt like the Lord was calling us to center on the story of Jesus and not only to do that um, but to allow the Gospel of John to guide us all the way up to Easter. And so each Sunday, we're taking one chapter of John, and maybe we're speaking of the whole chapter, maybe we're focusing in on a particular story, but as a community, we're reading the story of Jesus through the words of John, and just allowing ourselves to be immersed in that place, so that when you and I come to the, to the Easter moment when we experience resurrection and new life, um, this new kingdom movement that we're a part of, uh, it's not just words. It's not just a thing of convenience. It's not something that we think about for an hour and a half on a Sunday, but it's something that we're dramatically immersed in. And so it's beautiful that this Sunday, the Sunday that we celebrate dedication and baptism, we're also looking at John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus and his encounter with Jesus. And up to this point, from chapter to chapter, we have seen, starting in that big picture in John chapter 1, where John talks about Jesus as the Word of God, the tabernacle of God, and the Lamb of God, and then we take those images and what he's trying to tell us about what God really looks like in Christ Jesus, and he's packing them into these individual interactions that Jesus is having. So in John chapter 1, Jesus is interacting with those very first disciples that he calls Peter and Andrew, Philip and Nathaniel. And then he goes to his first miracle, which is not what we would often assume, which is some sort of miraculous healing or a deliverance, but it's actually this wedding. And even last week, um, Cole was talking about that, this wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine or water into grape juice if you're Baptist. Um, But the the chapter goes on and then we see Jesus going to the temple and clearing out the space that was intended for the God-fearing Gentiles to be able to worship Yahweh. And so everywhere that Jesus goes, he's challenging people's assumptions of what they think God is really like. And by extension, who are we called to be as God's people, and then who are we called to be as God's people for the rest of the world? And so I've been so taken in this particular journey through John, examining the way in which Jesus interacts with people on a one-to-one level, and seeing the, the specificity and the individual nature of the way that Jesus meets each one of us. We talked about even at the beginning that as John refers to himself as the one whom uh, Jesus loved, he's inviting us to each put ourselves in that place, that you and I are the disciples whom Jesus loves. We are the beloved. And so this series is really crafted around that in search of the beloved, God's search for us and our search for him. And so let's pray and we're going to jump into John chapter three. So Heavenly Father, we testify that you're here in this moment with us right now. Lord, we don't want to be a people that exist on the, on the, the residue of, of what you were in the past. We don't want to exist on the rumors of how other people have, have interacted with you, have encountered you, and have been transformed. But we want to be those people. So Father, we give you permission tonight to move in us and through us. That we're all here to hear a common message, but there's many things that we've brought in that are on our hearts and minds, and we believe that you're going to address those things tonight. Maybe it's what's said, and maybe it's got nothing to do with what we're doing as a community here, Lord. But if we meet you here tonight, Father, and we're transformed, we're changed into your likeness, that we leave this place a little bit more in love with you than we were when we came in, then it's been blessed. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, a rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so as we're looking at these time and again, Jesus interacting with all of these different people, challenging their assumptions of how the world looks and what God is really supposed to be like, I think we can kind of hone in on John 3 with this. Growth means we are continually rethinking the way that we pursue God and the way we perceive him pursuing us. Growth is that challenge to be continually rethinking. In biblical language, we talk about repentance. And so when we look at Nicodemus, we're going to be looking at these three specific interactions that he has with Jesus in conversation. And on Wednesday, I was kind of sitting at a coffee shop, really wrestling with this text and saying, okay, Lord, how do you want to frame this? And he kind of illuminated to me that the journey of Nicodemus is the journey of so many of us, especially those of us who have grown up in the church environment. That we've grown up in some sort of a religious establishment, and that there's a a good beauty to the foundations that we've been born into or that we've inherited. But sometimes those things will only take us so far. And not only that, but they can actually prevent us from growing into the love of God. And so when we're looking at Nicodemus, we're going to be looking at these three parts of Nicodemus' journey. Number one, the crisis of faith that invites discovery. Number two, the challenge to what we're being presented with in Jesus through conventional wisdom or the status quo. And number three, the question, can we actually change? Can we break out of our normal patterns of being and doing faith? And can we actually encounter him as he really is and grow into something new? So let's step in with John chapter three. We're going to be breaking this up and we're going to begin in the first verse. Now there was a Pharisee. A man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, who is this man, Nicodemus? Nicodemus, his name means the victory of the people. So if any of you are looking for baby names, I highly recommend this one. He can go by Nick. He won't get made fun of too much. But Nicodemus belongs to the Pharisees, who were a a group of, of rabbis and kind of religious elites that had sprung up right around the time of Ezra, probably about 400 years prior, and they became very prominent in the Jewish society of the day in the way that they interpreted the law and the way that they led other people to be faithful to to Yahweh's law. And not only that, but Nicodemus is also a member of the Jewish ruling council, which is kind of a, a religious congress made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and a few others, and they dictated the social and religious life of the Jews in that era. So what we can say quite confidently is that Nicodemus was very high up in the ranks of Judaism. He knew his stuff. He'd probably gone to all of the right schools. He had been living the right kind of lifestyle. And there's everything about this man that that leads us to believe that he was a man of power and influence who had all of the answers. And so it's amazing that we find Nicodemus, this powerful man in the Pharisaic elite, coming to Jesus in the middle of the night. Because perhaps he's afraid that his tribe is going to find out that he's asking questions of this young, radical, subversive rabbi who's come in with quite a different story to tell about what God is really like and what it really means to be part of his family. And so in a very precise way, we can say Nicodemus has had some sort of a crisis of faith, You know, oftentimes we talk about a crisis of faith in the negative sense. Perhaps many of you grew up in a church establishment where we would talk about people backsliding as soon as they began to ask questions, as soon as they began to reflect on some of these foundational teachings that were brought up with. But I would actually posit that for many of us, not only is the crisis of faith important, but it's imperative for us to be able to grow. Because Nicodemus has seen something in the actions of Jesus. He's heard something in the words of Jesus that has actually spurred him in to say, there must be something more. There's something more than what I've already understood. There's something more than what I have experienced up to this point in my life. But he's so afraid that the tribe he belongs to are going to judge him for beginning to ask questions, that he has to come to Jesus at night. But he has this crisis of faith that doesn't spur him away, but actually draws him into a deeper sense of discovery. And I think you and I, when we have these crises of faith, we have to have a sense of curiosity that allows us to feel uncomfortable with Jesus when we encounter him as he really is from time to time. And maybe sometimes that's in a place where you're reading through the scriptures and, and the words of Jesus are challenging you. Maybe it's how you're meeting him in your life as he really is now. Maybe it's through um, the people around you as they love you in such a radical and counterintuitive way. All of these things can invite a crisis where you go, I, I kind of thought I knew how this works. I kind of thought I knew what Jesus was like, but now I'm not so sure. And when we choose to be a people that cultivate a sense of curiosity, that crisis of faith doesn't keep us back from encountering Jesus, but it actually allows us to step into a deeper place of relating with him. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and kind of testifies, we know that you must be from God because of what you're doing and what you're saying. And this is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't even speak directly to what he's saying and say, actually, yes, you're absolutely right. Jesus adds confusion onto confusion because that's the way Jesus teaches because he didn't go to seminary and learn how you're supposed to lay out a sermon. And so he says this, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So you can imagine a man who comes to Jesus with questions now has even more questions. What do you mean by can see the kingdom of God? What do you mean by born again? And so I want to address this idea of being born again. It's a very beautiful idea that I think has been loaded down, unfortunately, over the past 50 years um, in a lot of church traditions within our own culture. And I think Jesus... As always, is very intentional and selective with the language that he uses here and giving us this image of being born. And so I want to look at just kind of three things that we can extract from this, this message of being born again. Number one, being born again isn't something you do, it's something that happens to you. Being born again is something that you receive by faith. We call this grace. What is grace? Grace is the hand of God placed upon you to empower you to do the things that you cannot do by your own strength. And we've manufactured this idea of being born again, that it's something that we muster up within ourselves, that we have to perform well, we have to get all the right answers on the test, and then that means that we're born again. But no, being born again, just like the first time that you were born in the flesh was something that happened to you. I promise, you didn't have a whole lot to do with the day that you were born. You mostly just showed up. If anything, you were probably not a huge help, and you were a little counterintuitive. But being born isn't something that you do. It's something that happens to you. And I think then when we understand that, it's that being born enables you to live a life worthy of the gift that you've received. And being born again isn't just about some singular experience that you've had. Can you imagine if I just went on and on and on about my birth certificate? And it's got my measurements, and it's got my baby footprint, and it's got like all the dates. And I just kept talking about this moment when I was born for the first time. And I'm obsessive, and every time you encounter me, I'm just telling you about this singular moment, the beginning of my life. And you say, yes, but Ryan, what about the rest of the life? What has that moment spoken to the rest of your life? Because if we are born again as something that we've received by grace, then we must respond to that grace by living a life worthy of the calling that we've received. I think this is why the American church produces so many stillborn Christians. Because we've made it about a singular experience. We've made it about a moment. We've made it about kneeling down and saying a prayer and getting the fire insurance. And that's all that's expected of us. And we haven't treated the moment of being born again with the beauty that it necessitates. That that moment becomes the beginning of a story that we co-conspire with God to live into. And it's important that we don't reduce it to being a formula that you sit down and you say these words and then something happens and now you're good to go for the rest of your life. Because just like we've seen so much time and again in John, this isn't about being a formula there's something that the words point to that's a little bit beyond the words. That John, time and again, is using this imagery and these words, these heavenly perspectives, and packing them down into these earthly vessels. Not so that it's something that we can comprehend, but it becomes a mystery that you and I step into and we participate in. We experience the reality of Christ, and that is what it is that transforms us. And so as you and I, when we participate in the life of faith that comes out of being born again that we begin to see transition and change. And so being born again isn't something that you do. It's something that happens to you. Secondly, birth hurts and it's messy, but so is grace. Can I get an amen from the mothers in the house? Not only do we formulize this born again experience, but we also sanitize it. We try to clean it up. We try to make it something that we can chart out on a piece of paper. But grace hurts sometimes. Do you hear me in this? The hand of God at move in your life, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. It is most definitely messy and not something that you can chart on a grid. We can't sanitize the process of being born again and turn it into another uh, religious act that becomes an institution and nothing more. I think about another Pharisee's conversion experience, that of Saul who becomes Paul. Just like Nicodemus, Saul had gone to the right schools. He was from the right tribe. He was from the right family within that tribe. He knew everything. And his Bible told him what he was supposed to do when it came to these degenerates called the Way later to become the Christians that were kind of splitting off from the Jewish faith. And and Saul is riding from one town to the next, heading to Damascus, and he has this dramatic encounter with the resurrected Jesus. This light shines on him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he falls off of his horse, and he becomes blind. And then Saul utters the one question that every good Pharisee should have been able to respond to in that moment. He says, who are you, Lord? And it's the one question that he had trained his entire life to be able to answer. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But he had this encounter with Jesus that literally and spiritually blinded him to prompt him to ask that one deepest question, who are you? Because I thought I knew. I thought I understood what God was like. I thought I knew who I was called to be and what I was called to do. But now I'm going to re-question everything in light of God as revealed in Jesus. And so that brings us to the third point about being born again. Being born again from above allows us to shed our old ways of thinking, to start all over in God's reality. It was amazing this morning being able to dedicate these two little babies, Alyssa Thompson uh, and and Janice Smith, and recognizing what does it mean for a baby? They're beginning not in this place of understanding who they are, not in this place of understanding what God is like, not in this place of understanding how the world works, but a deep primal sense of trust and dependence. And that we're blessing them into a life that begins in an intense vulnerability. Where there is no language, there is no practice that helps them to control their world, but they're at the mercy of the people who they've been blessed with in their lives, their mothers and their fathers, this community here. I think it's such the beautiful image for us when we talk about us being born again. As spiritual babies, you and I are learning dependence and trust upon God that we're, we're taking up the, the tent pegs of where we've established our confidence and our rootedness and our security, and we're moving it out of an intellectual affirmation. We're moving it out of words and deeds, and we're placing it firmly in trust and dependence upon God in this moment. And I wonder in the story, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, if he doesn't perceive something in Jesus that gives him permission to begin to ask the questions... In this season, as we're looking at bold community, or loving community for bold exploration, I wonder if Nicodemus sees in Jesus that love and devotion that creates the safe place for him to begin to ask the questions. That maybe the way that he's been doing it this whole time doesn't quite work. Maybe he doesn't have the whole picture. Did Nicodemus perceive that kind of devotion from Jesus that gave him that that sense of safety to begin to ask the questions. And so Jesus replies, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And so first, Nicodemus has this crisis of faith that invites a new sense of discovery. Secondly, Nicodemus begins to challenge what he's hearing from Jesus using conventional wisdom. So we're going to continue reading in verse 4. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So now not only is Jesus talking to us about being born again, but he adds on to that language, being born from above and being born of the spirit. Because you see, for Nicodemus, like any good Jew, it's about being born of Abraham. That's how you know that you're in the right family. That's how you know that you are God's chosen people, if you're born of the seed of Abraham. But here, Jesus is even challenging those assumptions of who's in and who's out and saying it's no longer about being of the flesh of Abraham, but it's being born of the Holy Spirit. And what can we take from this idea of the Spirit in the the way which he talks about? He says, you should be not surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What does this mysterious language tell us about not only being born again, but being born of the Spirit? I love this analogy of wind. We see time and again the word uh, in Hebrew, uh, ruach, means wind, but it also means breath, but it also means spirit. And it's very similar in the Greek. The word has several different meanings. So what does it mean to be born of the Spirit that we don't know where it's coming from and we don't know where it's going? I think that being born of the Spirit means that we're present to God right now in this very moment and we allow that to be the definition of our relationship with Him. That That you being part of God's family is not dependent upon what God has done in the past alone and it's not dependent upon where it is that God's taking us in the future although both of those things matter. It's about your willingness to be present to him in this very moment and not to try to box God in, but to recognize that you're enveloped by him in the same way that you're enveloped by the wind in the moment. You allow it to engulf you and surround you. So often we presented this idea of being born again, that you pray the sinner's prayer and then you invite Jesus into your heart as if now you're a container that holds the little person of who he is. Ha, ha, ha. You know, but we, we, we neutralize Jesus and we tame him and we make him small and we put him in this little compartment in our pocket because we've prayed the prayer and now Jesus is in our hearts. But I wonder if it's not actually the other way around. That we're not the ones who contain Jesus within us, but that now we are contained within him. I've heard it, it talked about like in this analogy that, you know, a, a ship, that's, uh, you know, at the bottom of the ocean, this, the ship is completely saturated by the ocean water and the ocean completely envelops the ship. But the ship does not contain the entire ocean. The ocean contains the entire ship. And that's what it's like for you and I when we're born of the Spirit. That we're completely, right in this moment, if you've been born again, you are completely saturated in the Spirit of God. But in no way could you hope to contain Him but in every way he contains you. And this is what it's like for us to be born of the Spirit, to be born from above. And so Nicodemus, quite naturally, just like you and I would, we begin to challenge this this very um, upside-down understanding of what Jesus is saying with conventional wisdom, with the things that we've learned. And so Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when they're old? I think we tend to meet the uncharted territory that God invites us into with the tools that have served us well in the past, the ways in which we've understood what God looks like, the ways in which we've been told who we are and how we're supposed to do faith, the ways we've been told how the world works. Whenever we enter into that new place, that uncharted territory that God's inviting us to, we reach into our toolbox and we use the tools that we've been given in the past, And I think those religious boundaries work so well in kind of giving us an initial sense of belonging. It teaches us safety, it teaches us acceptance, but before long, the ways in which you and I do faith can so easily become the inhibitors to growth because they stop pointing us to relationship with God and they become the very definition of who we are and we actually cut ourselves off from understanding who we're really called to be. Consider Peter later on in the story of Acts is up on this roof and he's praying and, and God brings him into this vision and there's this um, there's this, this, um what do you call it, sheet, I guess. The sheet kind of comes down of the sky and it's got all of these unclean animals on it. And God says, take anything you want and eat. And Peter says, I know how this works. I know what I'm supposed to do here. I'm a good Jew. Uh, no thanks, I'll pass. And God says, no, seriously, go ahead and take whatever you want to eat. Pigs or zebras or, you know, hamsters, whatever. I don't know, unclean animals. You, you, you put your own unclean animals under that sheet. And Peter says, no, 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 I'm a good Jew. I observe the Torah. I know that I'm not supposed to eat of anything of this. Did I pass, Lord? God says, no, seriously, though, take anything you want and eat. So three times God invites Peter to eat of these unclean animals. And eventually Peter gets it and he wakes up and he realizes that the way that he had been doing it, the way he had understood what God was calling him to do no longer fit the bill because God was calling him into something new. And it actually gave Peter the courage to step over another cultural boundary and enter into the house of a Gentile man whom what he would not have been allowed to do by his culture and to to share the radical news of Jesus with this entire family and to baptize them and to bring them into God's new family. It's not based on eating habits. It's not based on socioeconomic status. It's not based on ethnicity, but it's based on grace and the spirit. What we believe and how we believe it can actually prevent us from living in the love of God. In the church tradition, sometimes we talk about the beatific vision. It's this idea of the ultimate knowing of God. But knowing, not in that sense of knowing a lot of things about God, but generally knowing him through relationship. About seeing God face to face as he truly is. That that's the ultimate destination and the highest call for all of us as Christians. It's this place where we find perfect happiness and satisfaction in Him. But so often the way that you and I talk about faith, the way that we practice faith, actually prevents us from coming face to face with God as He really is. Many of you know that I was raised in the Anglican church. And so there was this whole you know, stretch in my life of being given uh, a sense of language and a sense of practice in the liturgy that teaches us how to walk into the presence of God. And I, I, I'm, I, I just see it so much as a gift that that was the way that I was raised. I feel really blessed in being able to have that kind of foundation in my life. But I recognized that I could have stayed in that lane forever and ever and just figured out this is the only way that you're supposed to do Christianity. But when I entered into college, like many of you, I began to interact with other people from other expressions of Christianity. I began to listen to other people's stories, other people's language, other people's ways of doing things. And I began to challenge my assumption that maybe my tribe isn't the only one out there started interacting with Catholics and Charismatics and Methodists and, yes, even Baptists. And seeing these amazing ways of talking about God and experiencing God. When I moved up to Nashville after college, I entered into a vineyard church, a charismatic church, and it was just flat out offensive to me. I remember one of the first Sundays that I was there, the pastor get up, and he's, he's a good old boy from Southern Virginia, and he said, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, I don't really know what the Lord wants to say tonight, so I'm just going to talk until he gives me something. And I was like, no, that is not how we do this thing called church. We have a calendar. We have liturgy. We know exactly what we're going to read and how we're going to say it, and it was offensive to everything within me. But even in those first few months, I really felt like the Lord said, I've given you this foundation to understand who I am, but now I want you to experience who I am in this whole new way. And it birthed in me this lifelong pursuit that if it points me to God, if it leads me into deeper relationship with Jesus, if it gives me a deeper devotion to his family and his people, then I'm all in. I'm all in. Because friends, you and I live in an an era in church history and history of the world that we cannot afford to be over-tribalistic when it comes to doing church. You hear me in this? We cannot afford to stay in our corner and to say my tribe does it the best way and we're the only ones that are getting into heaven and everybody else is kidding themselves. We can't live there anymore. Even when we, were, when we were building the library in the fall and seeing all of these books come in and we have Pope Francis sitting next to John Piper sitting next to Joseph Prince, and I was like, yes, yes, this is what I want. Because if it points us to God, it is good. And here's the thing, my, I will never stop being an Anglican. It's my heritage, it's my home base, it's my past. It's always going to be a part of me. But if I really want my past to be a gift and a blessing, I can't let it hold me back from encountering God today. But it becomes the platform upon which I'm able to build and to go deeper and to discover new ways of experiencing Him. And it becomes part of my story as I enter deeper into His kingdom. So Nicodemus has this crisis of faith that invites a deeper sense of discovery. Nicodemus challenges what he's hearing from Jesus using conventional wisdom of his day that told him this is how the world works. And finally, we find the moment when Nicodemus kind of turns it inward towards self-doubt and wonders if he himself can change. Let's consider reading um, in verse 9. So we'll we'll back up for a second. Jesus says, You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen. But still... You people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So Nicodemus wonders if he can truly change after all this time. When Nicodemus utters, how can this be? I'm hearing, I was saying, how can this be, Siri? (laughs) When Nicodemus says, how can this be? I hear this 70-year-old man who's done it one way his whole life. I hear a man that's gone to the right school, is of the right tribe, of the right family, is supposed to be the expert, is supposed to be the one that can give all the answers. I hear this old man saying to Jesus, I don't think an old dog can learn new tricks. I don't know if I can change. I don't know if I can grow into this new place that you're growing me because it's just been too long. I think for you and I, a crisis of faith invites more self-doubt than it does us doubting God's reality, because we begin to doubt our own self-worth. We begin to doubt our own abilities to grow and to change and to be obedient to where it is that God's calling us to. But when you and I are confronted with the truth That our knowledge and our understanding, our attempts to control the world around us may not be enough to truly live. What are we going to do in that moment? And it's so much the work of Jesus to be this specific that he's continually inviting. He sees who Nicodemus is and he's inviting him into relationship with him. He's putting aside all of the qualifiers of why, he, why Nicodemus might think that he can't cut it and that he can't change and he can't grow. And Jesus is inviting him into relationship with himself. And Jesus is inviting you and I into that same transition of knowing, that we move to knowing by faith, that comes through trust and dependence upon God as you and I recognize that we are spiritual babies and that trust and dependence becomes our foundation over and above our understanding of how this works. Let's continue reading in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus uses this story from Numbers 21 that Israel was becoming disobedient yet again to Yahweh and they started to grumble and say, maybe we need to go back to Egypt or you're leading us through the desert and we don't know what this is about. This is ridiculous. And so these snakes start coming into the camps and biting the Israelites and they're they're being poisoned and they're falling sick and they're nearing death. And so what Moses does at the prompting of God is he crafts a bronze snake and he puts it up on a pole in the middle of the camp. And whenever the the Israelites are bitten by snakes, they're invited to turn around to look at this bronze snake and they find healing in that. Quite literally, Yahweh is teaching Israel how to repent, how to turn back, how to refocus on what truly matters. And in that, they find healing. The Greek word for healing, sozo, is what we say for salvation. But it contains that element of healing and deliverance, of being led into freedom. And your salvation and my salvation, just like this idea of being born again, is not a one and done thing. But it's a process that takes the rest of our lives. That we have been saved. That right now you and I are in the process of being saved and healed and delivered and freed. And someday we shall be saved. And so John, again, is using this dramatic imagery and this language to point to how it is that God pursues us with everything that he is in Christ Jesus. And he goes on, John goes on to write this. He kind of pulls back this 30,000-foot view after this story and says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So Jesus came to free us of old ways of thinking and doing faith that end up keeping us in the dark and they lead us to perish. The very things that were destined for our good become our demise. But whether we're talking about being born again, whether we're seeing Jesus as the bronze snake who is quite literally lifted up to be our salvation, we recognize in both of those images that the new reality of God is inviting us to trust and faithfulness in him over our own understanding of how the world is supposed to work. When God invites us to repentance, he's asking us to rethink everything we've assumed about him as well as ourselves. Because this language of new birth, this language of repentance and turning back, it's all about reassessing where we place our confidence, where we find our source, where we develop our intimacy that leads us to understanding of our identity. And I believe that when we understand this passage in that light, we can say, is it not true that you and I are born again and again and again? that we enter into this new place of understanding how we relate to God and how we speak of him. And perhaps at some other point there comes that crisis of faith that leads us to start asking questions again, to say, God, I kind of thought I knew how this works. I kind of thought I knew what you looked like, but now I'm not so sure. But because we find that loving community in God, that safe place that gives us permission to ask questions, we're able to allow his spirit to lead us into this new level of understanding. And every time you and I are born again, every time that we repent, we turn back and we look at Christ as the best demonstration of what God is really like, we have a foretaste of our own resurrection. That every moment of repentance, every moment of rethinking what God's doing is a foretaste of the resurrection that is to come. So maybe you wonder what happens to Nicodemus after this passage. We leave him with this question, how can this be? In John 7, we we run into Nicodemus again and when the council is trying to figure out how to prosecute Jesus, he's the one that stands up on his defense and says, maybe we need to give him a fair trial. And in the very end, at the crucifixion of Jesus, it's Nicodemus who comes along and, and donates 75 pounds of embalming spices to give Jesus the royal burial that he deserved. So I think it's quite reasonable for us to recognize that, that Nicodemus did change. That maybe this old dog did learn some new tricks and that he became a follower of Jesus as he accepted him and found his trust and dependence in God anew. I think this is the amazing thing of what we're getting ready to do tonight that all the sacraments that we're invited into as the church are not expressions of our understanding of how God works. The sacraments are not expressions of you and I, quote-unquote, getting it. This is why I'm against the idea of rebaptism, but I'm very happy to reaffirm people in water. But all of our sacraments are expressions of trust and dependence upon God. Consider marriage. Can you imagine how ridiculous it would be to be standing there on your wedding day across from your spouse and to say, Janet, are there any Janets in here? No? Okay. This is my imaginary fiancée, Janet. How ridiculous would it be if I said, Janet, we've been together for a year and a half. I, f- I know everything about you. I've got it all laid out on a list, and I know everything about who I am, so now I'm willing to say yes. Janet needs to run for the hills, because that is a false promise. That is a fool's errand. But I think the most romantic thing that we can say in a wedding vow is the most romantic thing that we say in baptism, to say, I don't know who you are. I don't even know who I am half the time, but I'm willing to commit to you the journey to discover who you really are, who I really am, and what this all is really leading us to. So all these sacraments, baptism, marriage, dedication, they're celebrating the beginnings of a journey of discovering belovedness, the God who pursues us and our response to pursue him. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to worship. And there's two candidates for baptism tonight. I'm going to go ahead and invite them to go and change. But one of the things that we also want to do here, and we've done it before, is if you haven't already signed up to be baptized, but you really feel a stirring in your heart tonight, that you want to take that leap, that you want to look Jesus face to face and say, I don't quite understand you. I don't know who you are. But I also don't know who I am, so we're in good company. But I want to commit my life to walking with you in a lifestyle of discovery and belovedness until we enter into that that foreign land, that promised land where we're face-to-face with him as he truly is. And so we're going to step into worship. If you feel that call to be baptized tonight, if you want to reaffirm the vows that you once stood upon, and you want to be immersed in water, I want to invite you to go into that back conference room and somebody's going to be there to give you some instructions. And the rest of us, we're all going to worship God. We're going to worship this Jesus who has enabled us to be born again and again, the born through the Spirit, born from above. And then we're going to come around these candidates for baptism. We're going to lay hands on them. We're going to pray for them. We're going to bless them. And we're going to celebrate them being brought into God's family. So let's pray and then we'll worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Nicodemus. We thank you that it reflects our story of thinking we've got it all figured out, of thinking we know how it's supposed to work, and then we meet you. And maybe it's through the miraculous. Maybe it's through a radical expression of love. Maybe it's through a forgiveness of something that we did not think possible. And that moment challenges us into a place of discovery of coming to you and saying, who are you? And who are you calling me to be? And so, Father, as we worship here tonight in spirit and truth, we give your spirit permission to move in us and through us, to stoke up the hearts of your faithful here. Do business with us, Lord, as you see fit. And, Father, if any of us are kind of on the edge about whether or not we want to make this commitment to you, Lord, I pray for a peace that surpasses all understanding, that we would find ourselves so entrenched and immersed in your presence to us today that you did not come into the world to condemn us, but you came into the world to save us, to give us our lives back. That you would prompt us to action. You'd prompt us to respond to your grace at work in our lives. And so we dedicate the rest of this night to you, Lord. We give you permission to move and we pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.